Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin. When we started the podcast, if you go back and listen to our introductory episode, we speculated from time to time we would have special guests. And uh, we didn't realise back then that our first guest would be the one and only Mark Lewison. Hello, Mark. Hello. And welcome to the Nothing Is Real Studio penthouse. If you're listening to this podcast, you already know who Mark Lewison is, I hope. But on the off chance you don't, he's the world's leading expert and historian about the Beatles, publishing his first book on the subject, The Beatles Live in 1986, and going up to his most recent publication in 2013, The Beatles All These Years, Volume 1, Tune In the first of a projected three-volume biography on the band, uh, Volume 1 in its unabridged form, covering up to the end of 1962 after the release of their debut single. And Mark is currently on tour with Hornsey Road, a two-hour show about the Beatles' Abbey Road, which is what has brought him to Dublin this weekend. And Abbey Road is just coincidentally celebrating its 50th anniversary at the minute, and it also happens to be at number one this weekend. Uh, Open brackets, not number one in Ireland, but number one in the proper UK charts. Mm. I've I've checked. and uh, it deserves to be at number one, which is incredible after 50 years. So maybe we'll start a bit with Hornsey Road. How come you're doing this at this time? Um, once tuning came out, I started to receive offers to uh, invitations to do uh, lectures, um, principally in America, at uh, colleges, universities and so on. And um, it's nice to be asked to do those things. And uh, like everybody else, I need to put food on the table. So... Um, Every once in a while I will say yes to an invitation. I pick and choose them. But when I do a presentation, they take a lot of work. Mm. And I don't do anything half-heartedly ever. So um, as you spend weeks putting something together, you begin, no matter how much the fee might be, you begin to resent spending so much time on it. Mm. Even though I can spend as much or as little time as I like. But once you start out to do something well, it can take time. And um, so I did a White Album talk last November for the 50th anniversary at a seminar, a symposium in Monmouth, New Jersey. And it took quite a long time to put together and I was beginning to resent it. (laughs) Um, Not that that was their fault, but it was my own. And when I got back to England, it's a long story this, but when I quickly, when I got back to England, I went out for dinner with some people and one of them was a man from Phil McIntyre Promotions. Oh, yes. And uh, a big, a big Beatles fan and a reader of Tune In, and he said to me, "What have you been doing?" And I told him just that. And he's, and I said, "The drag is that you do all that work and you only do it once." Hmm. And he said, "Well, you could do a tour. You could do a tour of it. You know, I could book you into theatres and you could do it." And really? Well, yeah, okay. Uh, the White Album anniversary was gone. Theatres book months in advance, yeah. so we couldn't get anywhere before the spring of this year, and the White Album was last year. 
not that I'm a great believer in everything having to be anniversaries, yeah. but nonetheless. So he said to me, just anticipate the next anniversary and start planning it now and we'll book you in. So the Abbey Road album, obviously, 50 years, September mm -hmm. 2019. So from about January of this year, we've been planning this tour. And he booked all the venues, 25 venues, yeah, uh, 25 dates, and um, quite a big tour. So I'm now, a, from being a writer who works very <laughs> quietly in isolation, I'm suddenly out there as an entertainer on stage for 25 nights. And does that give you any, I know it might seem a strange question, any insight into your writing about entertainers and performers? Uh, has this little taste of the road given you an insight you didn't have before. It has, it has. Uh, a couple of things, for example. One is the fact that you spend such a lot of time in the van, <laughs> on the road, going from show to show, and that uh, what a drag that is. Yes. Even though, you know, I've got a, a very nice tour manager and we get along very well and we talk easily, it's just like it's a lot of miles yes. on the clock and it does get a bit uh, wearisome. And finding hotels late at night. I mean, these are the Beatles. These Every touring band has had these adventures and I'm... I'm not in a band and I'm, I'm not a teenager, but I'm nonetheless, I'm going through that. Another one, just a simple one, on the very first night of the tour, which was Northampton, I realised that in every theatre dressing room, you've got an, a loudspeaker that enables you to hear the show. Mm. Now, because I'm on, I am the show, but you can still hear all the auditorium warming up and you can hear people going to their seats and you can hear bits of conversation. And if there's anyone on the stage sorting out something technical, you can hear all of that because you have that live feed coming into your dressing room. And it made me realise that when the Beatles were on tour in the UK, this would have they would have had one of those in every room, every dressing right. room. And so they would have been able to hear the incredible acclaim for them that was ruining everybody else's act because <laughs> they were always on last and all the preceding acts all had to perform to the wall of we want the Beatles we and screaming. And they would have been able to hear that yeah. before they went on. And what an amazing thing that must have been for them. Yeah. So that was a nice little realisation. And the show focuses on Abbey Road and one of the big things in the lead up to the show coming out was this September 1969 tape that was reported mm. in the papers everywhere and uh, I'm always fascinated by September 1969 I think we both mm. are because mm. everything seems to change from the 1st of September to the 30th of September Yes, and uh, I, I guess I kind of want to ask you about do you think that's the key month when you know what's going on in August is different to what's possible in October Yes, yeah. yes, un undoubtedly. I think by October, well, we know that John was no longer a Beatle by then. Yes. Um, he just was encouraged not to say anything, yeah. so he didn't. But there's still odd bits of activity. So one thing I read recently was that he's playing Abbey Road when at the ICA when Yoko and himself are showing their movies, Yeah, and it's pre-release. And I think, well, that's, that's a guy who's still kind of proud. It's interesting that we... We think of the John and Yoko and the Beatles stuff as being totally separate. Yes. But he still just sees this as a big artistic continuum, even in that early part of September. I agree with that. I agree with that. And I don't... I, people get very het up about and, <laughs> and, and very formulaic in the way they think about things. But I think that they were just open-minded artists and it was, it was a new piece of work and why not play it at a public event? And he yeah. was doing those film screenings and why not play it? Yeah. Um, I was shocked to realise that he played it to the film self-portrait yes <laughs> maybe um, Maxwell Silverhammer was the uh, <laughs> was being bang banged at the yeah, time yes. right yes yes <laughs> but um, 
No, I, I don't think that they thought so tightly, and in, they were they were the definition of artists who thought openly. Yes, and uh, nothing was confined to strict little pigeonhole boxes. Um, but there's still, uh, and sorry, I know I'm doing all the talking here, but I mean, we've. <laughs> uh, it, it seems that you know Ringo had left the band, George had left the band, but. Paul probably knew that something was up with uh, John. And I think the other thing that Paul isn't given credit for is that he had a 10-day-old baby at home. He's like got a he's yeah. a new father, so he's got baby yes. brain as well. So yes. he's not yeah. you know, he's thinking about other things as well. Absolutely. But um the meeting where Paul's uh, John said to Paul I want a divorce can't have come as a great surprise to Paul. Yeah. And uh, I mean he was suggesting that they go back on the road at that point, but they've been discussing that on and off for 2-3 years. Yeah. And um the irony is that actually George went on the road in December of that year and John was playing gigs. He'd just come back from Toronto. So Paul got the message, we don't want to go on the road with you. Is that really it? No, I, honestly, I, I, when I was putting the White Album talk together last year, I realised that they quite clearly must have had an arrangement within themselves, within the foursome, that, that they, from 67, maybe even earlier, that maybe even from 66 that they could do things separately as well yes and it didn't not everything had to be under the umbrella of Beatles mm-hmm. um, and in fact if you look at it really they had been doing separate things all along yes I mean John doing a book doing in 1964 yeah. for example would, is, would, is do, that. do you think that would have been an explicit uh, arrangement I, I think that they I could think do so. Family Way or Yes. Wonderwall or electronic sound absolutely and Ringo could go off and do candy and it didn't mean any it didn't mean any detraction from Beatles they could still come together and be Beatles but they could also do their own things separately and then at that point where, where John says I want a divorce mm. did Paul do you think in the meeting that was taken as a final or, or would they just have been that Paul be thinking well this is just another of John's uh, you know today he wants a divorce you know then he thinks he's I don't know Jesus Christ or <laughs> I mean he, uh, they all did change their minds yeah. as we all do in life yeah. and again you look at it from history and you're kind of looking for hard and fast things but life isn't always like that I suppose we all want a point at which we can say well this is the, this is the mm. definitive point at which there was no hope that they would ever get back together again um, I know that the others I saw this expressed somewhere they thought that John might come back mm. um, and they waited and they waited and he didn't and then by when did Ringo begin Sentimental Journey? Was it late 69? Late 69, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Paul began the McCartney album basically at Christmas time. But there's always that outlier session that I learned about from your yeah. sessions book, that 2nd and 3rd of July 70 session, which we talked about on a previous January. podcast. January, January, January 3rd, yeah, 4th. Where they do mm. I Me Mine. Yes, and Let It Be. Yeah, were they expecting John to turn up to that? He was in Denmark at the time. He was right? in Denmark, but I now realise that he wasn't going to be there anyway. Okay. Had he been, mm. I mean, he was away, so that's why we always think he wasn't there. But I have a feeling he wouldn't have been there anyway. Yeah. Because he had gone. Yeah. And but it they is, just hadn't said anything. It is odd. Like, I mean, I often think of the Beatles as almost like, you know, almost like being a college, you know? So mm. college, you, you don't, you, you intend to keep in touch, and it's very easy to just, yes. once the balloon goes up in the air, it's very easy for it to just yes. dissipate and end. And you get a feeling of that from the September to April period, that it's just, yeah. it becomes the new normal. It becomes a limbo period, really, yeah. uh, because they're not together, but we think they are, and they've got <laughs> another album coming out, but they're actually already broken up. Yeah, so you, that and, and they're sort of preserving the public face, that no one's, no one's saying this. No one said anything until Paul put out his press release and the others were miffed, and John in particular, mm. that, 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 that it came out in that way. But obviously someone needed to say something at some point. <laughs> do, do you think that the McCartney album, 
what what I find interesting about the McCartney album is it's it's got those little snippets of of instrumental tracks, and then suddenly you have fully realised, you know, mm-hmm. maybe I'm amazed or every night. Uh, was he intending? always intending that to be an album and was he intending it to be an album in the sense that uh, electronic sound or life with the lions it was just a it was a little experimental thing that was going to run in parallel with the beatles and then for me it all seemed that once instant karma cold turkey instant karma they're directly commercially in competition with the beatles and then mm-hmm. he thinks well i'd better put some proper songs on this and and that that's the shift but it, it strikes me that maybe originally it was going to be just a little throwaway oh, experimental i don't know i don't know you, mm. only paul would know the answer to that mm. and also adrian sinclair and alan cozin who are writing what i know is going to be the yes, Paul McCartney yeah. from the early 70s oh and great that will be that we'll get our answers from that i think because okay. that will be the right one um and they know much more about that period than i do um but i think it i, I to me, the McCartney album was always just a reflection of who he is. Mm. I mean, he, he can do beautiful short songs, he can do beautiful love song, long songs, and he can do just little fragments of things, and he just kind of threw them in. So I don't think it was in his mind, I wouldn't imagine in his, in his mind it was like an experimental album. It was just a, an expression of what Something he wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he, here are some complete songs and here are some fragments. So, uh, But it was very disappointing at the time. We were just discussing yeah. this earlier over breakfast. That, I can't, as as someone, I'm going off topic here, but no, we're no. Uh, as as <laughs> someone no off topic. <laughs> as someone for whom the early seventies was current, yes, uh, and not something I'm viewing from history, but actually living through it, I can't stress strong enough how, at the time, for all of us who were alive and experiencing those works in their moment of release, all those early McCartney singles and albums were disappointing. Yes, they were. From history now, they're they're fine. Yeah, but in the moment, everyone was so disappointed in them, and that included me. Well, I've said it on the podcast before because I I became a Beatles and McCartney fan in the eighties. That at the time, I was very annoyed that I wasn't around to experience the Beatles in mm. the sixties. Uh, but I also believe that McCartney's solo career is best enjoyed in retrospect. Mm. That you know you can kind of look back at the whole soup now and yes. go. You can relax about McCartney and Ram because, you know, there's a band on the run coming or there's, you know, whatever, mm. whatever tickles your fancy, a tug of war. And, uh, you know, so the, 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 there's a total difference between, you know, the Beatles, you kind of feel that desire to be tied to the time, you know, yes. what it would have been like. But with McCartney, you're like, actually, no, I can just get lost in certain yes. corners of his career for a period of time. Yes. And, uh, and everything's all right. You can and everything is all right. And I'm, I really, I really enjoy the Wildlife album now in a way that I didn't at the time. <laughs> I will defend not, that I'm album. I'm not a believer but even <laughs> I, but 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 like you say, I came to that. You know, I was listening to uh, Speed of Sound, uh, London Town, and then I bought Wildlife, mm. and it's so completely unrelated to yeah. this. The sound is different. The, the 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 lack of lyrics, everything is so different from that very polished mm. late seventies silly love songs with a little luck sound. That I but I I still find it difficult to get past that. Uh, sort of the baggage right. and the reputation that it had. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I remember reading the Enemy Encyclopedia of Rock, and they were describing Wildlife as being an, an appalling album. Ram was the lowest point of sixties rock, <laughs> and so, so you still, I still have that in the back yeah. of my mind. Um, <clears throat> yes, it's hard, so. to, hard to disassociate yeah. it if you know that. But if you live through it, the McCartney album was disappointing, yeah. even though it's got some wonderful tracks on it. I mean, in the moment. We had hey, we had we went from Eleanor Rigby to Penny Lane to Sergeant Pepper to 
Fool on the Hill and Lady Madonna and Hey Jude and all the tracks on the White Album and then The Glory of Abbey Road and then suddenly we've got Krina Craw <laughs> and, and tracks like that and okay they're fine and the, any artist can do anything and it is valid and I'm not in any way but oh, no, in sure. the moment we all went oh yes mm. we really did and when, when's he going to make something good and of course we knew he was capable of it and by our definition of good those new tracks weren't it and then we went to Another Day mm, and yeah. then Ram which sounds lush and great now but in its moment it was just like it was so disappointing yes and then Wildlife was another step down and Give Island Back to the Irish I'm trying to do it in order Mary Had a Little Lamb it's just like what is this guy on <laughs> where is Paul McCartney now yes, yeah. yes and we all Band on the Run was we um, revered so much partly out of relief you wanted it to be good we wanted mm. it to be good so yeah. at last at yeah. last the, Paul McCartney is back yeah but from history those early works are fine yeah exactly and it's it's. Uh, I'd almost say it's a pity that uh, I enjoy those moments when McCartney just tips his head onto a tape and whatever comes out comes yeah. out you know because he tends to react afterwards if he does a McCartney too mm. he, he does take criticism on board of these things He's mm. his antenna is very tuned to, to all of this kind of stuff um, now we're kind of gotten away from Hornsey <laughs> Road but we have. I suppose the other question is uh, has this given you a taste to do any of the other albums surely there's a, 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 a more than two hours to talk about Get Back and let it be and oh, all that yeah I think I'll leave that one probably leave that one to Apple because yeah. they're doing the new film yes. Peter Jackson's film I'm sure will cover it very well yes uh, and we're going to get all of that next year I hope next year it, it probably a, will be next year it is a nice reminder with these 50th anniversaries just how close these albums came out in real life yeah it really feels like a few weeks since I bought the White Album box yes. and now yeah. we're all buying the Abbey Road box set it's an yeah. extraordinary uh, reminder of that or even, even the 50th anniversary of Love We Do doesn't seem that far away 60th uh, 50th don't I mean, even put it, when it, it oh, 50th you know, yeah, way from, from way back yes. yeah it doesn't seem uh, on the Let It Be box am I, am I right in saying that you did a lot of work back in 2001, 2002 on Let It Be uh, on the film or were working at that stage? Yes, at that time um, th the DVD was of it was, was being considered and I don't, yeah. know I don't know if it had a target release date, it wasn't necessary to it wasn't my business to know that that was Neil Aspinall uh, sorting things out but mm. they did um, all the interviews for mm. the, the, the sort of what would be the bonus, bonus the extras yeah. For the DVD, and that's where I was involved and interviewed Michael Lindsay Hogg and Neil, um, and the two policemen who went up on the roof to, <laughs> to stop the show or to ask him to turn down the PA. Um, and who else? Oh, quite a few people. Um, uh, but then it never happened. So that, that was already sort of prepped and, or at least yes. in, at a reasonably advanced stage. No. Whether yeah. they're going to use any of that yeah. next year, I have no idea. Um, yeah. I did the help at the same time and those were used so mm. the, if you look at the help DVD there's an interview with Neil on there that's my interview okay um, but um, whether they'll use the Let It Be stuff I don't know they may just redo it or yeah. I also did Magical Mystery Tour with Apple and when they eventually put that out they did it all again Right, right. Yeah. Um, okay, so we'll just have to wait and see what future projects uh, yeah. or presentations you do beyond Hornsey Road. Well, I probably will do something. Yeah. Um, I mean, th the reality of, of writing a very long and the, all these years series is a 30-plus year project for yeah. me, is that um, when you write books, you get paid on a publication and on delivery of manuscript. So uh, the last check I had of any substance was on publication of TuneIn, which okay. is now six years ago. Right. And my next check will be when I deliver the manuscript for volume two, which will be 
in the future and I'm not, I don't know exactly <laughs> when but quite some distance into the future so it's just like how on earth do I eat yeah. in the <laughs> okay. meantime and and this is an attempt to basically uh, give me the money to carry on writing Okay. and people say well why don't you do crowdfunding well I, that's not fair because I've already had a publisher's advance so, yeah. and I don't crowdfunding isn't me Mm-hmm. It's it's I'm I'm too old for crowdfunding. Uh, my my head is in a previous generation. Yes. Yeah. A young person might think of crowdfunding, but I don't think of crowdfunding as valid <laughs> for me. But also you've got cachet and name value in in terms of your historical work and what you've done so far. So yes. you know there's a, there so, was a room full of people last night. Yeah, like, that's the guy. My idea of crowdfunding is to have people pay 20 pounds, which is not that expensive for a night out, and I'll give give you a two and a half hour show. Yeah for your money and then you've given me your money and you've gone away with something. Okay. Mm. Um, we might rewind back because one of the things myself and Stephen were talking about, you know, before you're coming into us today was how did you start doing all of this? And I, I know I've heard you talk before saying that you were, you were born in the late 50s and you were acutely aware of the Beatles as they were happening as a kid. Mm. And I've wondered, because I know I've said this a few minutes ago that I, 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 I had this ache that I didn't experience the Beatles in real time. How important has that been for you as a biographer to have experienced that in real time? And do you have any insight into people like me who didn't get to experience in real time? Um, with regard to the second half of that, um, I mean, I understand that, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of things that occurred before I was born. Yes. So, yes, you just can't, you, you have to accept that you can't have that experience of things being freshly released and going out and get them on the day of release and so on and not knowing what's coming next is the big one yes mm. because the Beatles as viewed from history we kind of though we don't know the history as well as we think we do mm-hmm. um, and that's what I'm trying to address in these books um, we do know the, the the overall pattern we do know the chronology the headlines so yeah. but in the moment you can't know tomorrow so that excitement of knowing of Sergeant Pepper being something that you didn't know about yesterday and suddenly today you're holding it in your hand and playing it, that is something that is a, a valuable experience, I think. And that's and something I, and I've loved about that. the books is that you do try and write, you know, obviously people coming to your books will know, oh, stuff happens, but there's none of this kind of coy, oh, and just around the corner, this was about to happen. There's a very strict kind of procedural yeah approach to it yes I was intent from the very outset of not anticipating what's coming next for the reader so I sow a lot of seeds Mm. um, that will flower later in the story and uh, because that's necessary Um, but because they didn't know what was coming tomorrow so too um, did I write it that way and keep to it strictly Mm. So none of this, because I, I can't stand it when people say things like, little did they know <laughs> yeah. that in yes. eight years' time they yes. would be doing this. Well, they didn't know it. Yeah. And um, <laughs> that wasn't why they were doing whatever they were doing in order to anticipate something eight years later. Yeah. You, life isn't lived like that. And it's much more understandable as a story if you tell it in that strict way. Okay. So when you encountered the Beatles as a kid, was it uh, immediately this is it or was it just part of the panoply of records you were buying as a kid? They were head and shoulders above everybody else. I did buy other 45s. 45s was was where it was at in the 60s. Mm. Singles were really much more important than LPs. Everything is viewed now through album, the prism of albums. But mm. the singles were really what people knew. Yeah. Albums were bought by you know a relatively a fraction of the, those who bought singles. Singles were played on the radio album tracks hardly ever. Mm-hmm. So you had to buy the albums to hear those tracks. So you knew the singles, and I knew the singles as they happened. 
and uh, but I was a child so I didn't have much money but it was easy for people to buy me presents because <laughs> they always knew what I wanted which was you know I'm next, still like that <laughs> the next Beatles record will do me fine yeah. thank you and there's no greater gift I mean those little pieces of seven inch plastic are the absolute embodiment of what made the Beatles so special mm. in a sense more than the albums I would say okay because I mean these beautiful two two and a half minute tracks that they just kept dropping into the world with a brilliant b-side as well it, it is it is still impressive after all these years that you know the way people say oh you know Queen were a great singles act and so and so is a great albums act the Beatles mm. were two separate acts they were a great singles act and a great albums act even Please Please Me from the start is an album that there's a definite before and after yeah. in terms of album releases when that comes out yes so they're, they're, they're running two parallel careers and I know that's something we come back to. That's the, the you, you, there, there's so many different ways you can kind of approach the Beatles mm. uh, and just enjoy them that way as a yes. young band, as an old band, or, mm. or, or whatever you you, you feel. Um, so, how does that then evolve into, um, you know, becoming a historian or a writer about? Just, I don't know. That's a huge um, question, I guess. <laughs> unless you have any more specifics. Well, we we, we were talking about the Beatles Monthly uh, and, and Sean O'Mahony, the, the sort of reissues and re. But is that's the, is that the point where you first started writing about the Beatles yes. for Beatles Monthly? Yes. Yes. And so how did that? Did, did you approach them? Yes, I think I did. Um, I used to buy it in the sixties. I, I I had some odd issues, uh, but it was in I think number fifty four. January 68 that I first started to buy it every month mm. routinely and I used to cycle around to a newsagent's near me every first of the month and it was two shillings I think and um, I got my name in it um, <laughs> okay. in those days I in think the six, back I, in, 60, in 68 oh, okay. or 69 I'm in there uh, in the, the list of uh, people who wanted pen pals oh. <laughs> I was in there a couple of times and, um, and then it stopped and life moved on <clears throat> but in 1976, he revived it. Mm-hmm. And I remember going into the office just before the first revised issue, revived issue came out, which was, I think, May 76, um, just to go into the office and say hello, basically. I don't know quite why I went, but picked up a copy of the magazine. And um, then in that December, well, the first Beatles convention in the UK happened in August 76 at Norwich. And I went to that and I was 18 Mm-hmm. And then there was a second one in December. But being a Beatles fan in the UK was really difficult then. There weren't many of us left. Mm-hmm. We'd been reduced down to a solid core. We, Some of us still see each other, and we know that we're like <laughs> old veterans now. Because in that period before John Lennon was killed, it was the Beatles were so passe, or yes. so yeah. it seemed. Yes. And we were clinging to it. I was still current in other ways. I did listen to new music, but I wasn't just living in the Beatles world. But I did love the Beatles and didn't want to let it go. And the convention in London was very poorly attended. It was in the wrong venue, Alexandra Palace, Ooh. in the Great Hall, which <laughs> held very thousands. Very massive, yeah. And it was just before Christmas, and it was cold, and it was the 1970s. <laughs> and um, there were about, I don't know, 100 people there, wow. maybe. We were rattling around. It was a complete flop financially. Um, but as part of it, there was this quiz called Beatles Brain of Europe. Who mm. knew more about them than anybody else? And I went in for it and I won it. And that then I got in touch with Johnny Dean, Sean O'Mahony, mm. and said, I've won the quiz. <laughs> Is there anything I can do for you? And there was, because um, with the magazine Revive, they were getting a lot of letters from readers asking particular questions. 
you know, when, so, when was so-and-so released? Can you inform me, you know, what schools did they go to? And he didn't really have that factual knowledge. He'd run the magazine, but he didn't, he was a publisher. He wasn't a mm-hmm. Beatles fan, mm-hmm. particularly. So, um, though he liked them, but that, that, that wasn't, he didn't have a body of knowledge in his head. So he used to pay me one pound per letter <laughs> to give the answers that were published. And the, this was, for, for those who don't know, the magazine was republished with a sort of a wraparound, yes. uh, three or four pages yeah. back, and back and front. Yeah, uh, four new, pages new, at the front and four ma- at the back. New material, yes. at least new written material. So. Yes, so I w- it would be Johnny Dean Says, mm. and I, but I would write it for him. Okay. And uh, type it, and he would pay me one pound per letter <laughs> if it got published, which was great. I got paid. That's where it all began. That's it's always nice to be paid for something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's the, the, the little acorn that leads us to today, I suppose. Yeah, and that, then I started to do bits of writing, but I really wasn't a writer. I mm-hmm. didn't know how to write. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't fluent as a writer then, Yeah. Um, but I worked into it, so... And uh, just to touch upon the thing you talked about there, the the Beatles in the 70s is a weird conundrum. Mm. And, you know, I think, you know, they they showed like a roadmap to all bands in the 60s about how you're supposed to do things. Mm. And I think unbeknownst to them in the 70s, they were kind of laying the groundwork as to how you split up. You know, people hadn't really figured out business arrangements or structures or reissues or any of those kind of things and again even though they're not they're like Schrodinger's Beatles they're existing and not existing and they're kind of moving forward um, and people are Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trying to figure out how to monetize this thing. And it, but it's a big myth that there was going to be another Beatles. I always find this amusing when they say, well, you know, T-Rex or the, the new Beatles like there wasn't even another Beatles when the Beatles were around you know but, yes uh, how what do you think was the, the thing though that kind of started to tip things the other way was it was it really John's death in 1980 or was there could you feel rumblings towards the end of the 70s because we start getting all these reissues and compilations and all that in the late 70s uh, yeah but I don't think the reissues and compilations first of all every country is different yeah so I, I, I can mostly speak of Britain but uh, I mean, in America, they were always bigger through the seventies. Their influence didn't diminish, mm-hmm. and they were still big. They were still a hot act through the seventies in America when they were not in the UK. Is that due to American radio having a longer tail, or is there? I guess so, and also they don't have that same eagerness to move on mm-hmm. um, and turn their back on things that are special as we do in, yeah. in Britain. I don't know if it's true for Ireland, but mm. that a kind of cynicism that you move on quickly and it, oh, that's last year, yeah. you know. Yeah. 
Um, and the whole format of oldies radio and so on was so established in America and FM being different from AM and just a different market, yeah. really, and different mindset in the in the listener, in the population at large. Mm-hmm. But for me, unquestionably, it was John Lennon's death that changed it. Yeah. And when John Lennon released Double Fantasy, there wasn't a lot of interest in no. that. Not in the UK. Mm. I mean, maybe elsewhere, but no, not really. It was, it was, it was. Oh, okay, yeah, that was it. I, I remember buying Double Fantasy when it came out. I didn't actually buy it. I mean, I remember it coming out, mm. and it was there was just disinterest. I think in the music papers, it, 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 it there was a huge build up. I think in America, yeah, but in the UK, and uh, I didn't. You know, I was a huge Beatles fan, but I didn't buy that record, and I didn't buy the single. Right until after uh, January eighty uh, one, um, mm. simply it was just a non event. Really. Yes, the 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 um, the Beatles convention in Liverpool, which had be the first one of those, was in nineteen seventy seven, and it was organised by the great Alan Williams and the great Bob Wooler. Um But still, you know, hundred people maybe, but in a smaller venue, so it it worked and it was good. Um, and these events carried on sporadically through to 80, but as soon as John Lennon died, the 81 convention was, like, massive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I have no doubt that that was when the shift occurred. And so in that phase, you know, you're moving towards writing your first book. And I guess, you know, finding information at that time is different to how we find information now. Mm. And The Beatles Live, is that just a book you wrote to satisfy your own curiosity? Because once these questions start coming... You kind of, it must have been hard to believe that nobody really wrote this stuff down. Yes, well, none of the Beatles kept a diary. Mm. Um, and uh, unlike, say, Bill Wyman in The Stones, who was a record keeper and a keeper of papers mm. and so on, um, the Beatles just lived their life and, and they weren't looking back at all. Yeah. So um, it wasn't that far earlier. You know, late 1970s is only a few years after the Beatles had broken up, but it seemed like eons. Mm. And I just started to research their live dates initially um, on a commission from Philip Norman to find a, the date that John met Paul All right. and to find the dates when the Beatles toured in Scotland with Johnny Gentle. But having satisfied his inquiries, I was just so consumed with the research of it all and the, the joy of the discovery of the knowledge that I just carried on. Yeah. And that's real library work. Yes. But, I mean, um, you're literally going to libraries and looking at papers. I know you, you mm. referred to this in the Hornsey Roadshow, but that's mm. the still the meat and potatoes of how you get this done. It is. I mean, the internet obviously is an incredible resource. I mean, that's, that's, that goes without saying. And it's, But it's there for everybody. And if you really want to find something that only you can find and that isn't generally available, then you need to go and do it yourself. Mm-hmm. You need to go and... Not everything is online. Far from it. It's only still a, a fraction of, of what, what there was. Yeah. So um, I, like, I like going to places and looking through papers and... You know, going through the horn. The show is called Hornsey Road because of my discovery in the archives of EMI that they were going to kick out of everything except classical music from Abbey Road and buy this studio on Hornsey Road, and pop would have been recorded there, including the Beatles. Yeah. So they would never have recorded at Abbey Road, and it came close. There's only about four years before they come along, four or five years, and I only found that out because I thought I'd go through the board meeting minutes of EMI. And why start in the 60s? Because thinking, corporate thinking, you know, takes years to percolate through. So I started in the 50s, not looking for anything. I had no idea what I was going to find. I quite possibly was going to find nothing of any interest whatsoever. Hmm. And a a fair bit of research time is spent finding nothing. But if you don't look, then 
A, you don't find, and B, you'll you'll always have that doubt in the back of your mind that there was something you didn't look for, didn't yes. look at, <laughs> that might have been useful. I have to admit, the Hornsey Road bit was probably my favourite bit because I used to live mm-hmm. uh, where Hornsey Road bisects Tollington Road. Oh, and I used to live <laughs> right there. Yeah, I used to live right there. And when you put up the pictures, I'm like, oh, it's down the road from the Sabell Health Centre. I, I, yeah, I, I was like, that's insane that yes. this was around. Because one of the reasons I moved to the Holloway Road area was because of Joe Meek. I thought, well, we'll see where Joe Meek works. Right. And I thought this was hilarious that I lived around the corner from Joe Meek's old yes. studio. Yes. Um, but I didn't know that it could have been the the Abbey Road at the time. So yeah. that, was, that really struck me because I re- I knew that place very very well. I mean, it's a bit obscure to name the show that, but I always take. Um, lead from the Beatles in that they never did anything obvious yes and to call this show Abbey Road I mean yeah I mean okay but yeah it's, it's not clever enough not <laughs> not for a show title it needs to be a deep yeah. cut <laughs> yeah of information yeah so I thought Hornsey Road the making of Abbey Road or something like that would, would just come at it differently okay so w- when the Beatles Live comes out uh, are you already on the radar of EMI, Apple, Beatles organisations at that point or um, how how do you kind of transition then into, you know, kind of the next, what I would kind of say almost is the next phase of the work with the sessions book and the day-by-day book and all Um, this. Well, going back to the Beatles Monthly in 1979, late 79, so it's right 40 years ago like now, (laughs) um, I offered to Sean O'Mahony a monthly news compendium, Beatles 79, uh, dot 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 you know whatever I'd been able to find about um, what was going on in the lives of these four guys and the world around them um, in the past month and it, so current news and events and in that magazine which was principally still a reissue of the 60s mag um, it was the only bit that was truly current about you know what's new record coming out next month and he's about to go off on tour or whatever and um, as a consequence of that I had I would routinely contact the record companies and press offices um, asking, you know, is there anything happening that I can write about? And so I, that's how I got to know EMI. So when the recording, I, and I had that relationship with EMI right through the early 80s of me writing about whatever they were doing mm-hmm. and then beginning to ask me questions about the consulting with me, like when the 20th anniversary reissues came out from 82 onwards of Love Me Do and mm-hmm. Please Please Me. I had, I was kind of, kind of consulted on that I can't remember quite how or what but I was part of the process slightly yeah and so I knew all the people at EMI who were on they used to have a Beatles committee oh right okay which they always denied the existence of and I'd (laughs) love to see the minutes of the meetings of the Beatles committee because they they would be fascinating to read Um, and they must exist somewhere but (laughs) and and I hope one day they get out but I I don't have them Hmm. but um, I know that my name would have been coming up at those meetings so when eventually EMI as a company decided to do a book about the Beatles recording sessions, I think my name was just in the frame as to someone that who, who could do it. Yeah, and also the Beatles Live had had shown them, shown EMI, that something as relatively dry as a list of dates and places could be made into a readable book. Yes, and what they had with the session data was something that on paper was quite dry, but could be enlivened into a good narrative. But but you must see that now that you started a genre of book. Like there's, there's, you know, you can buy Kinks Day by Day and Who Day by Day and all that kind of stuff. That, yeah. That's your, the chronicle, one of your shadows. The Chronicle really is, is that I know immediately there was a Rolling Stone Sessions book and an ABBA Sessions book and mm. a, a few others. but And then the Beatles Chronicle, which was a folding together of a lot of my research. 
that has led to quite a few other similar type books but they were actually the ideas of publishers not me okay but, but the, the recording sessions yeah. book the, 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 I've read a few of the other sort of the stones and but there's not the same level of detail but is that simply because EMI were the sort of bureaucratic record keepers mm -hmm. that other studios weren't? Yes. Well, I'm, I personally, I thrive on detail. Mm. And I always think that detail can be used to enliven something rather than to drag it down. Yes. Um, but absolutely, you're right. It was the fact that uh, as, a, as, a, as an operation, EMI was good at keeping records of what it did. Mm -hmm. So there were all the recording sheets were there in filing cabinets in a corridor at the studios, which I used to just go and ransack. And uh, everything was filed by job number. And there was a book that was an index of all the job numbers. Um, and so I would just Beatles and it's 1069 or whatever. And I go through the filing cabinet and pull out the file. I mean, it seems staggering that that information was still there, that at some point someone hadn't said we, we should just be getting rid of that or we should be clearing that out or we could use that room for something else or we could mm. uh, it's there for every session though it's not just Beatles information oh yes. it's everybody's yeah. everybody information. everybody yeah, yeah. absolutely all the artists who recorded at Abbey Road yeah and that paperwork is all still kept and is it uh, back in the 80s was it still physically in Abbey Road I know this is a tall question but it was all physically on site in yeah, that it was, building it was literally in filing cabinets that didn't the way the ball bearings had gone and you, you, know, <laughs> you had to really kind of yank them open and then kind of shove it back in again because yeah. it was off its rails yeah um, but yeah, it was as easy as that. And then they're all protected now. Yes. But they were unprotected then, in a sense. The filing cabinets weren't even locked. Yeah, people could adjust. But but this people mm. didn't steal. Yes. Um, I mean, I dare say the odd thing had gone missing, but but I don't know about. But it, it, in theory, it was just all there available. I mean, the whole story of Abbey Road, the building itself. Like we were at the Abbey Road presentation, one of those presentations in August. And the fact that, you know, there was almost all this work done in the early 80s to knock it and renovate it, and, and mm. but they, they pressed pause. They, they, there's this kind of shift towards understanding legacy a bit better in the 80s. Yes. yes. Well, this is what I'm wondering. Is, is the Sessions book a key part of that? That, that, that this, is, this is the point at which EMI suddenly start to realise exactly the value of what they have? In, in terms of their archive, because it seem, it does seem to me that it coincides with what you did for uh, in in preparing and the research for the sessions book. That suddenly that's the point at which EMI as an organisation suddenly realises, well, we shouldn't have this in open filing cabinets with broken ball bearings, or we should mm -hmm. be doing something with this, and we need to preserve that. And it sort of coincides with. Um, uh, I forget the name of the chap who, who put the, the brakes on the redevelopment of... of uh, um, yeah, was it Ken Townsend? Ken, 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 probably Ken. Yeah. He yeah. was general manager yeah. of the studio, Ken Townsend. The, the, that's the point at which they suddenly realise we need to do mm. something. Whereas up to that point, uh, one of the things we talked about on a previous episode was the sort of slightly careless approach of EMI to comp com compilation albums and mm. rock and roll and love songs and ballads and and then suddenly they start to realise what it is they have and that comes in the mid-80s around the time of... I don't... I don't... I think there was some... I think the two things are running in parallel. I think they were aware of what we would now call legacy mm. and, and Abbey Road Studios, which is always a difficult one for the studio because it is a real working it's studio working, yeah. Yeah. and you have to be cutting edge to get the work, you know, in, in any sphere. You know, if you, otherwise a competitor studio will get it instead. Yeah. 
Um, but at the same time, number well, number two studio and number one, only number three has significantly changed. Numbers one and two studios there are still much as they were by appearance, but in the control room, they've got everything is up to date. Mm. The control room is is, is modern, mm. but the studio floor itself is pretty much as it was, and it was never a lot. It was all fairly Spartan in in the first place, and it's still Spartan. That was what surprised me. Well, we I say we we were there a few months ago, and it was just it was just a big space and a few yeah. chairs and uh, yeah. these instruments scattered around. There was there was no luxury to it. There was nothing. Mm. Uh, that that no. was very interesting. And the Beatles weren't expecting luxury, but they did begin to to tire of Abbey Road's bureaucracy and and the um and the 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 few frills that there were or the no frills that there were they they did tire of that because mm. as they started to use independent studios that were made in the moments they were going well you know this is quite nice actually to yes. record like yes. this and but then presumably there are other fewer records available from Trident and Olympic and when oh, they when they do their sessions comes back to your question yeah. EMI was a very good record keeper they had almost all the tapes and they had almost all the sheets they didn't have sheets for singles they only had sheets for albums if singles were recorded during album sessions that was okay, that was okay. Mm-hmm. but there was no sheet for example for the please please me session or the from me to you session um but there you, you could get hey jude not hey jude but penny lane and strawberry fields because they were just recording it was part of our, yeah um the, the sheets for those but other than carping on about a few things that weren't there, the majority of things were there. But as soon as the Beatles stepped out into Strident, into Trident or Olympic or any places, Delane Lee, there's no paperwork at all. And it just makes you appreciate the value of EMI in keeping records. And the Sessions book was very much an EMI project, so Apple didn't have any, any involvement at that stage? No. And in fact, that comes back to what you were saying just now, because in the 80s, EMI was doing all these compilations Beatles ballads, Beatles mm. 20 greatest hits and so on. And Apple, the Beatles, had no mechanism to stop this. The recordings were owned by EMI, that was unequivocally true. Um, and they they didn't have to consult. And the Beatles were watching these things coming out and going, oh, God, not another one, not another one. And they had no consultation over the artwork or anything. Mm-hmm. And EMI wasn't trying to be crass, but they were trying to make money. Mm. And um, so they would routinely be another issue of something or, you know, I don't mean the track something or a box set of <laughs> the singles, you know, picture discs and cassette singles and three inch CD singles. And it, Apple couldn't stop any of that. And the final straw for Apple was when EMI put out that um, cassette tape called Only the Beatles that you would get free with uh, Heineken, the, Heineken, Heineken yeah. Lager yeah. ring pulls or something like <laughs> yes. that. Yeah. And um, they drew the line there and went, whoa, whoa, you know, our music is not to be given away with beer cans. Mm. And um, it must have seemed like a good idea at the time. As an active record company, EMI had a promotions Mm. department, probably had a a meeting with the brewers of Heineken, and somehow or other that went through. But the Beatles just went, no, that's one step too far. And that was added to a whole string of legal problems that had existed between them for many years. And that all got settled in 1989. And from that point to this day, EMI doesn't do anything Beatle-wise without Apple saying yes or no to that idea. And And, uh, and the Recording Sessions Mm. book just came before that settlement. Probably, possibly, had Apple 
been controlling EMI a little bit earlier, Beatles-wise, that book wouldn't have happened. And at that time, though, weren't Apple themselves in terms of... There was a Paul versus... George Ringo Yoko issue as well internally in Apple was there? Uh, Just the override fallout the Dorchester oh yeah that that was yeah earlier 83 that big meeting was 83 where they discovered Paul's override yeah (laughs) Um, I'd only recently hmm. realised that that override was from 75 Mm -hmm. I thought it dated from his re-signing in 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 Capital in in the sort of 80 was oh, it 1980 right. he resigned or after he left Columbia Columbia yeah um, but I hadn't realised it dated all the way back to 1975 80s. yeah but I'm I'm 99% certain mm. that I've I mean I've seen the contract so um, yes I'm 99% certain it goes back to that contract so I for, may be wrong but I don't think so so for people who don't know what that is could you explain this is where Paul was <clears> getting a little bit extra Paul, Every time a Beatles record was yeah, sold, Paul re-signed with Capital. Uh, I mean, all the Beatles contracts were up for renewal. The '67 agreement bound them as as individuals as well as as a band for nine years until January 1976. So, in 1974-5, with the end of contracts in view, um, they all had approaches from various record companies to sign with them. And Paul had a good offer from Warner Brothers and I don't know, probably every every company. Mm. And they all did. They all did. Um, and Ringo went off and signed with Atlantic Records in America and Polydor for the rest of the world, as, as I remember it. And George signed with initially A&M yeah, and then with Warners. And Paul stayed with EMI Capital. Mm-hmm. And as part of his new contract, which was obviously a very good contract by the 70s because 70s music contracts were wholly different from 60s mm. contracts for everybody um, he had a, a clause added that gave him a, um, a better royal gave him a, an extra royalty on Beatles record sales as well so when a Beatles record sold John would get X George would get X Ringo would get X and Paul would get X plus Y <laughs> and that why was coming from the record company's share. It wasn't, it wasn't that the other three were getting any less. It no. was just that he was getting something more extra. Mm-hmm. That sounds totally fair. <laughs> um, yeah, but you could see... Do we know how that became known to the other three? I don't know that. Mm. I don't um, know that. But because, I, and I don't know that John ever knew it in his lifetime. That's what I was wondering. Was it after? I believe it was after 1980. Because well, the the, the big meeting that that um, came about once that was once that became knowledge. Once George Ringo and Yoko found out about Paul's override, that meeting was 83. So mm. I imagine they'd only just found out, but I don't know how they found out. That was reported as a big reunion. Wasn't it reunion rumours as the Beatles meet yeah, in Dorchester no. and they were just... Uh, I remember photographs throat. of George coming out of the Dorchester. Mm. Not, not looking happy. Mm. You know, not looking <laughs> 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 it must have been a, a, a... And Paul was working with Ringo at that time on the Broad, Broad Street. Street. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that relationship had to maintain until the film was released. Mm-hmm. But um, that they felt look I wasn't at the meeting and it's their lives and not mine but my understanding is and it seems sensible to realise that they felt that um, that that was a betrayal of of their ethos mm. yeah that they had always divided everything equally and then suddenly suddenly one of them was a bit more equal than the others yes it wasn't coming out of their pot but nonetheless it was 
they felt it. I'm sure they felt it. I know they felt it. Didn't it didn't pass the uh, smell test. But it was underhand. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, seemed, it seemed to me that there was a parallel there with Paul acquiring a few more shares in Northern Songs mm-hmm. the, 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 and, and the animosity and the, when Lennon found out that suddenly Paul had been acquiring some additional beans yes. <laughs> there, that that was no longer an equal split and that, that was a great yes. source of uh, you know, animosity. It, it was very it, comparable. It was. it was. It was. It was pretty much the same thing. Would you think, I mean, I'm sort of again getting wildly off topic, <laughs> but I mean, do you, would you speculate that Paul didn't appreciate that that would cause a problem or that he just looks at things in a different way that you because I remember him he said well you could have done this if you wanted to you could have done the same thing mm. it's just smart business well Paul seems like the great compartmentalizer you know mm-hmm. that, that's my as a fan that's what I see that he's able to say today I'm famous Paul today I'm business Paul today I'm family mm-hmm. Paul and he just mm-hmm. you know it switches those things on and off I don't know whether that's right or wrong I think probably right um I don't know. I mean, <laughs> we're all accountable for our own actions, yeah. and they're, they're often um, it just it, it, uh, nobody else can actually know. You have to be inside his it, head. It just struck me that the fact, the very fact that it was secret until <laughs> it, it emerges, yes, probably compounded the issue. If it has I to would be imagine secret, so, yeah, yeah. If it has to be secret. The fact something. that it, yes, exactly that. I mean, you if if it was um, something he could have been if, that he was totally if he was at ease with his own action there in taking more yes. then he wouldn't have kept it quiet yeah, and so true. he would have just said to the others yeah. look I've got a bit more because I re-signed yeah. you could have done the same yeah. and I'm sure that's probably what he said in 83 yeah. um, but because it was held back from them obviously it was something that he he probably knew would inflame them. Hmm. So so by eighty eight eighty nine, where the EMI Apple relationship has mm. changed and recording sessions has just come out, and then your next step after recording sessions is that when you begin an association with Apple directly at that point? I began one with Paul first because when the Beatles Live came out, he 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 really liked that book. He really liked that book, and he he and Ringo in particular would couple of the anecdotes in that book would become part of their storytelling <laughs> um, they love the fact that um, that I reported that the Beatles had played a gig in Preston in September 63 and after the gig Paul had driven off to judge a beauty contest <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, if they ever knew that I mean Paul would have known it because he did it but in the weight of everything else yes, happening they get forgotten. Gets, detail gets forgotten. and suddenly he read that in the book and he loved it and he and Ringo laughed about it and they both mentioned that in interviews afterwards about judging a beauty contest and all that and I knew they got that from the book so that was very pleasing for me and you were telling me he had he signed a copy of the book for you he did he did and I honestly I can't remember what he wrote but it was something like the best Beatle book ever um, and signed it all the breast uh, Paul McCartney <laughs> and I think he actually put 10 out of 10 at the bottom as well like a school teacher which was nice and um, and then I interviewed him for the recording sessions book and we got along very easily and he enjoyed the questions being you know a that's bit, a, a fantastic bit interview I think I think like I remember my own if I can be personal for a second when I was 14 at Christmas 88 I had a voucher to spend after Christmas and mm. I bought the White Album and the Beatles sessions book right. and that is basically <laughs> that, that has made all the difference mm. but I remember reading that interview at the time and I think there's there's stuff in that interview that you just he's talking in a way that you haven't really see he's quite interested in techniques and process he's very at ease he's very at ease in that interview yeah he was straight away we actually did because I'd met him once before and because he had the Beatles live um, and he because I was writing the sessions book and 
I gave him a list of all the people I was interviewing and they were all engineers and people like that at the studios that he he had long relationships mm. with and knew that they could be trusted. So he knew this book was going to be an okay book because they were they took a very dim view of Beatle books after John died. Paul in particular took a very dim view. Post 80 is post 81 really is when the Beatles literature explodes mm, into yes. Into what it became, and uh, they were unhappy with a lot of those books. The so Peter Brown book was a big no-no, wasn't it? It was for them. Yeah, it was for them. Yeah, I mean, it educated a lot of other people, but it, for mm. them, it was. They had problems with that book. Yeah, and so, so um, when I when I was working with Paul, when I did that interview with him, he said, um, "Well, I actually had a call from his PA to say Paul is thinking of doing his autobiography, and he wants to do it with you." Mm. so um, we'll put you under contract and we'll pay you and you'll be available for Paul whenever he needs you and I went okay <laughs> fine <laughs> yeah sounds like a good one yeah and um, I was I was very happy I mean I'd, I'd last been in regular employment in a paid job where someone gives you a paycheck and gives you salary and mm -hmm. um, holiday pay and sick leave and so on five years earlier and I was thinking I'd probably eke five years out of my different ideas yeah. and suddenly it was opening up in front of me now I could, I could just carry on doing this So you're kind of on call then for in interviewing and talking to Paul or are mm. you let loose on MPL archives or what, what kind of happened? No, it, um, I was just when he was ready to do his book I was lined up oh, okay. and, and then in the end he never did that book Yes um, and I, I've said this in a couple of interviews elsewhere so I won't go into too much into it but I think I probably talked him out of it <laughs> Um, inadvertently, um, by because I was asked to put together a little briefing document about what his book should be. Okay, and I always aim, aim very high, and I aim very high on his behalf so that his book would be the very greatest of music autobiographies ever. It would absolutely set the benchmark, mm. but obviously it would require time and effort to do that. And I think he probably just ah. And is is this <laughs> the time when a Beatles biography starts germinating? No. In your mind, or is that still a few years away? No, that was years away. The anthology came next. Yeah. After the settlement with EMI and Apple, um, with Apple now holding control over how things are going to be done, um, that's when Neil Aspinall started to yeah. evolve his long and winding road film into the Beatles anthology. But the greatest impetus for the anthology was George's business mm. problems. Yes. Because he was suddenly short of money relatively so uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes um in the early 90s and um needed a bit of a bit a bit of beatles income yeah so he was he was on the ropes because of handmade pictures and and dennis o'brien and that's where we're going to put a pause on the first half of our mark lewison interview uh, we're going to put the next half out in a week's time, next Wednesday, on the regular Nothing Is Real release day. Uh, in the interim, we remain online in the normal places, at BeatlesPod on Twitter. Uh, go on to the Facebook and look for the Nothing Is Real Facebook group. You can join us there. And uh, don't forget to leave your nice reviews wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but until next week, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.